Amen. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Thank you, band. Um, That is got to be one of the must-have hymns for the church. Amen? You know, good and bad, uh, there's a lot of must-haves around us um, in our own culture. Um, I have a two-minute commute each morning. And in those two minutes, I rejoice that I only have a two-minute commute each morning, and I also hear about all variety of things that really I must have. I hear about uh, must-have clothes, I hear about on the radio must-have phones, I hear about must-have cars. Um, Graduates keep a list of must-haves for uh, potential job, employers keep a list of must-haves for new hires, Uh, and then of course we have the world of dating, which some of you are long past, some of you are just entering, and some of you are in that mire right now. Uh, Men have must-haves for women, women have must-haves for men. Um, I read recently about the top four must-haves that women look for in a man, six foot one, bald, beer belly, and a pastor. (laughs) Who knew? Am I right, baby? Am I right? I know. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. In healthy churches, (laughs) healthy churches, we will also have, right, a list of must-haves, but hopefully here in this place, they're a little bit more rooted in the Bible. Um, So here at MCC, uh, if you're you're brand new, I want you to know that we got uh, got several must-haves. Five of them are what's called the solas, uh, which is Latin for alone or only. These are five key doctrines that were rediscovered during the historical event known as the Reformation, which began what year? And it began on what date? Okay, um, which means that at the end of this month, the Protestant Reformation, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary, and so that's why we're doing this five-week series Uh, So if you are uh, brand new this morning, if you are a brand new guest, man, I'm so glad you are here. Thank you for visiting with us. We hope it's a good morning for you. Um, For the month of October, we're doing something a little bit different with this series. Uh, We are trying to blend together each week doctrinal teaching on each one of these solas together with at least like a little intro biography to some of those key reformers um, during the Reformation. So if you've been with us through the whole thing, then you know week one, uh, we looked at Martin Luther in Germany and the doctrine of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Week two, Pastor Carl introduced us to Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and the doctrine of sola fide, or faith alone. Last week, we met John Calvin, France and Switzerland, and we looked at the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone, which brings us to this morning. We are going to leave the mainland of Europe behind. We are going to hop the English Channel, head for London, where we're going to meet a very complex man named Thomas Cranmer to consider the doctrine of solus Christus, or Christ alone. So we got doctrine, we got reformers, we got historical events, 
But above all that, every Sunday in MCC in our teaching, we want to make sure that we first anchor ourselves in the scriptures. So for today, that means that um, we're going to go to maybe the epic passage for Solus Christus, John chapter 14 in your New Testament. Um, If you need to use one of the black Bibles, this is on page 901, John chapter 14. And while you're turning here, let me quickly lay the, uh, the scene before us, is the Last Supper. Many, maybe not all of us, will be familiar with that. It's a Passover feast, but it's kind of a reconstitution of the Old Covenant into what's called the New Covenant. And Jesus is going to be crucified um, the next day. So at the tail end of John chapter 13, Jesus predicts Peter's denial of him, which of course Peter denies. Also, Jesus predicts the betrayal of Judas, who then slips out into the night. Um, And then in the midst of this, this very hard night, right before the crucifixion, John 14, beginning at verse 1, we have Jesus saying this to his followers. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So they're not in the bulletin, um, but I put just two headers in my own notes, which you can repurpose for yourself um, if you find it useful. Here's the first one, Solus Christus Doctrine. Solus Christus Doctrine. Um, Let's play a little game of historical who am I. You guys ready? I am a very powerful man interested in both religion and the ladies. In fact, my romantic relationships can be summed up pretty much like this. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Who am I? All right, Henry VIII, we know him, right? Countless books, movies, television, he's very much in pop culture, even today, um, have all explored this guy. And really, understand, it was in the providence of God that King Henry was the means by which the Reformation expanded out of just Europe into England, along with him, all of the intrigue of a modern-day soap opera coming right along with it. So this Reformation in England, it looks a little different than it looked like in Germany and Switzerland. Um, The figure that gets all the attention, of course, is Henry VIII, 
But the true reformer behind that was a man named Thomas Cranmer. Uh, Cranmer was born in an obscure little village in the year 1489. Um, So same generation as Luther, just a few years younger than he was. Um, Now we go to the 1530s. King Henry wanted an annulment from one of his first of six wives. Her name was Catherine of Aragon. Catherine had borne him a daughter named Mary, but no son. So Henry's Lord Chancellor, a guy named Wolsey, he was ineffective at acquiring from the Catholic Church that everybody was a part of an annulment, which is what Henry wanted so he could get rid of Catherine, move on to the next one. So Henry had Wolsey sacked for treason, and then he elevates this academic named Thomas Cranmer to that position, and he names him Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, essentially, if you're not really familiar with the history or you know, you're just hearing it for the first time, this is what happened here. Henry kicked Catholicism out of the country, sacked the Lord Chancellor, and invented his own pope all so that he could get what amounts to a divorce. In abbreviated form, that's the history. That's, that's the way that the Church of England or the Anglican Church or historically known here in America as the Episcopal Church, that's how it was formed. In the midst of sin and self-centeredness and confusion, the Reformation was brought into England. Which is interesting because 1,500 years before that, It was in the midst of sin and self-centeredness and confusion that we have these disciples in the company of Jesus and in the text before us, Christ is proclaiming to them one of the most important doctrines in all of Christianity. If you kept your Bibles open, and we always encourage you to do that, John 14, 6 That is, for believers, one of the most encouraging and comforting claims in all of Scripture. For non-believers, that verse is simultaneously one of the most frustrating and off-putting texts in all of Scripture. Some of you who know your Bibles well will know that this is one of the seven I am statements. It was preceded by I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection. Jesus is going to say in a few chapters, I am the true vine. But here, verse 6, we have one of the most powerful claims in all of the New Testament. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and so we pause and we ask one another, what is the most offensive word in the Bible? You know? The. The. See, if Jesus had just said, I am a way, so many of the frustrations and at times even arguments with the world around us 
could have been entirely absolved. Jesus really missed it on this one, I think. Except what he said here is exactly what he meant to say. He both said and he meant, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so we got to recognize right off the bat that the, that the exclusive claim of Christ here, it lays an axe to that tree of belief that says that Christianity is just one of the great religions of the world. Jesus is entirely chopping down that mythology right here. And you look at the context in which he says it. So the disciples, the guys who followed Christ, these are the guys who burned their fishing boats, as it were, to join his team. And so in more and more explicit terminology, Jesus is giving them insight into what lays ahead for them and for him. And he's making it clear in these chapters, is not going to be easy. And so around that table, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, reflected in the faces of those disciples would have been shame or fear or confusion, or doubt, or perhaps a combination of all of the above. And into that, at that Passover meal, that we call it the Last Supper, Jesus says to them, John 14, verse 1, Guys, do not let your hearts be troubled. The disciples were afraid. And Jesus is laying before them a truth that you and I will do very well to grab hold of ourselves, that the problem before us is never as big as the God who is beside us. The problem before us never, ever is as big as the God who stands beside us. Solus Christus, it means a lot of things. Here's one thing. Well, If Christ is the only way, it means I am not the way. (laughs) Here's another thing. If Christ is the only way, it means others are not the way. And here's a third thing. Solus Christus, well, it's very practical. Actually, I'm going to... I'm going to hold off on that one for a second because I want to just hang out with the doctrine for a moment. Okay, Solus Christus, first and foremost, it's doctrinal, okay? Within Solus Christus, we have the truth that Christ alone is fully God and fully man. It's called the God-man duality or the hypostatic union. It's the way theologians talk about it. The doctrine of Solus Christus means that Christ alone led a sinless life. We call that the active and the passive obedience of Christ, that he actively fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law and he passively absorbed the just wrath of God. Okay, the doctrine of solus Christus means that Christ alone can pay the penalty for our sin. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Solus Christus means that Christ alone rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and intercedes for us today. That's called his mediatorial kingship. The thing is, with every one of these sub-doctrines, libraries have been filled 
for every single one of them. Because doctrine is super important. But it's also important that we never detach the truth of the doctrine from its practical implication. Real doctrine, if it's real, it will always have an off-ramp into your life. Solus Christus means, Jesus said, that we need not let our hearts be troubled. We can be confident, no matter what may swirl about, that the problem before us is never as big as the God beside us. Solus Christus doctrine always points to, it leads us to, a Solus Christus life. That's the other header I wrote down. You got Solus Christus doctrine, and then you got Solus Christus life. Here's a, maybe a picture of that. So England, 1530s, King Henry. You know, he wasn't really any more Protestant than he was Catholic. Um, Henry, he did dissolve um, most of the monasteries, but that was largely just so he could take the estates for himself and then use some of them to buy off a few barons and nobles. He actually preserved several uh, Roman Catholic doctrines that Protestants respectfully but very firmly disagree with, things like priestly celibacy, transubstantiation, the veneration and exaltation of Mary. Um, And in truth, uh, Henry, he had both Protestants and he had Catholics executed. Um, uh, As far as Protestants, maybe the most famous one was William Tyndall. Uh, He was the one who first translated the Bible out of the original Greek and Hebrew into English. Basically, Henry tried to execute anybody who did not respect and view him as the supreme head of the church. So it's interesting, right, that this was the guy God used. I think about Joseph talking to his brothers, right? What you intended for evil, God meant for. So God's using King Henry to raise up and to elevate this man named Thomas Cranmer, essentially because Henry just wants to replace the pope with his own pope. But in God's providence, that did allow... Cranmer to bring this truth of solus Christus to the forefront. Salvation not by the church, not by sacraments, but by Christ alone. So some of the reforms that began under Henry, um, it was really when Henry died and his kind of sickly son, Edward VI, came to the throne, um, that Cranmer, he sort of came out of the shadows and really began in earnest what he'd been laying the groundwork for. So his first aim was to uh, uh, take a shot at worship and preaching, and so uh, he totally revised the Book of Common Prayer. That was the church's liturgy at the time. And then Cranmer also wrote what's called the homilies, think prepackaged sermons uh, that were given out to all of the clergy because, you know, here in America where we have so many resources, we forget there was a time where none of the clergy was trained to preach God's word at all. Even if they had access to God's word and even if they could have read God's word, they were never trained to preach God's word. And so Cranmer, he kind of packaged 
packages up all of these sermons and he makes them available because up until this point, pretty much the mass was the entire service and all of that's changing. By the way, Luther did um, something similar down in Germany with these ex-Catholic priests and kind of providing uh, sermons for them to use. Uh, Cranmer also, third thing, so Book of Common Prayer, homilies, and then he also drafted what eventually became known as the uh, 39 Articles. I think it started with 42, and then um, uh, Queen Elizabeth chopped out a few. So it became 39 Articles. Um, those of you who spent time in Episcopal or an Anglican background, uh, that, that will be very familiar to you. Um, here's a sample from chapter 15 of that confession. Um, the chapter is called Of Christ Alone Without Sin. Christ in the truth of our nature was made like unto us in all things except sin only, from which he was clearly void both in his flesh and in his spirit. He came to be the lamb without spot, who by sacrifice of himself once made should take away the sins of the world. And as St. John saith, sin was not in him. So in England, it was because of Thomas Cranmer that the doctrine of solus Christus and the other solas began to be propagated. And then King Edward died. Okay, remember I mentioned Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. She had a daughter named what? But history knows her as Bloody Mary, yes. Okay, because after Henry died and after Edward died, Mary now takes the throne and all the Reformation reforms, they come to a grinding halt and they're really not going to get started up again until Elizabeth takes the throne down the line because in 1554, Queen Mary issues all of these injunctions which began to reverse all of the reforms that Cranmer had begun under Henry and under Edward. She began uh, persecution of Protestants, lots of executions. The problem was that Queen Mary had a great memory, and she remembered the part that Cranmer had played all those years ago when she was just a little girl in, in ousting and embarrassing her mother. She remembered that. And so now she has imprisoned in the famous Tower of London, Cranmer and a bunch of his allies. And we can be confident that in the 16th century, the 16th century jail cell where people, you know, they were tortured in the basement horribly and daily you can be sure you have some time in that cell to think through what do I believe are the implications of solus Christus? What do they really mean for me? Because remember, Jesus said, the context in which he gives that that verse, which probably 80% of us could have recited before we ever came here today, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The context in which he gives that verse is verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why not, Jesus? Why shouldn't I let my heart be troubled? 
People are getting tortured downstairs. I'm probably going to be executed. Stuff is, bad stuff is happening because my father's house has many rooms. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Uh, the, the Greek there for house, it literally translates out living quarters. In the first century, the image that this would have brought to mind was like, think um, a giant villa, like a, um, a mountainside resort, except the vocabulary connotes not just a place of security, but also a place of intimacy. And so maybe the best, like, feel that, not just know it, but to feel it, you think about your childhood home, if you had a happy childhood. Um, uh, just this weekend, my family, we did our annual fall trek up to New Hampshire where I grew up. Um, and my, my childhood was very much a mixed bag in a lot of ways. And yet, right, that, the, that the nostalgia, the feel, the call of home, you guys know that, Right? Or my wife right now, she's processing all kinds of emotions because her middle sister is leaving Pittsburgh and moving several hours away, and her parents are going to be moving right behind her. And so home base is no longer, out of all these years, it's no longer going to be Pittsburgh the way it used to be. And so the, the, the point is that Jesus is tapping into those kinds of feelings and that kind of imagery here. But then he's saying, hey, listen, your home, your real home, is not somewhere you've been. It is somewhere where I will take you. I am the way and the truth and the life. I will take you to this place where there are how many rooms? Many rooms. <laughs> so many rooms. Lots and lots of people. The, the expansiveness. We tend to think of John 14 wrongly as exclusivity and narrow. The expansiveness of God is simultaneously on display in John 14. Invitations are going to go out everywhere. You marry this with what that picture that we have in Revelation 7 where the worshipers before the throne are from every tribe, every people group, every language, every nation. And we're reminded here that if Christian claims are exclusive in some ways, then well, they certainly aren't prejudiced. Because no people group gets left out. For all who rest in Christ alone, Jesus is preparing a room. And that's hard to remember in times of hardship. I know that and so do you. Back in the 1500s, also imprisoned in that Tower of London, were a couple of guys named uh, Latimer and Ridley. Um, Latimer had been taught by Cranmer, and so he understood the importance of right doctrine. Um, This is the spot that marks where they were executed, burned alive for their faith. As they were lashed to the wood, Ridley, uh, he was younger by 20 years, he turned to his mentor, his friend, and he said to him, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. (laughs) And And that's it, right? That's the doctrine. That's the practical implications of the doctrine of solus Christus. That the problem before us is never as big 
is the God beside us. And then as the fire was set, Latimer, the older, turned to Ridley and he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And here we are, 500 years later or so, still talking about that flame. I think, where does faith like that come from? I mean, these are dramatic scenes. Lord willing, scenes that, that, that neither us nor our kids ever have to face, you know, that kind of extreme. But where does faith to stand in that moment come from? Well, it's confidence that what Jesus said here in John 14 is true. Or, or Paul, standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, and he said, he declared to him, listen, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. See, while every other religion on the planet says we must climb up the ladder to God, Christianity flips that and says God comes down to us. The linguistic irony here is that when you really grab hold of the truth of Christ alone, you simultaneously realize I'm not alone. The problems before us are never as big as the God beside us. And so... What are you facing this week? What lies ahead of you this week? I don't want to belittle that at all because some of us in this room, we've got challenges I know that are, well, there's something. <laughs> but are you once again going to complain to God about how big your problem is? Or are you prepared to tell your problem how big your God is? For, for me, I'll tell you, I'm so grateful that church history, and you know I love history, and I know not everyone loves history, but man, there's an awful lot that we can gain from history, and one of those things is that history gives us these pictures, not just of great heroes like Latimer and Ridley, because I got this sneaking suspicion I'm not those guys, but it also gives us really flawed heroes like Cranmer. And I got a sneaking suspicion I'm a lot closer to him. Because, you know, there's a guy, well, in his case, he transformed the church, but he also bent to the very selfish desires of the king. Cranmer proclaimed boldly Christ alone until he was near the end in the prison cell and he wavered and he signed a letter to the queen because he didn't want to face the painful execution that he knew lay ahead of him. And so he recanted his faith. He promised submission to her. She was unconvinced by his new confession and so she had him burned at the stake anyway. And it was there at the end, true story, 
He speaks. The crowd begins to pull him off of the stage. And he runs ahead of the crowd to the already lit um, fire where he will be lashed to the stake there. He's ahead of the crowd and he thrusts his right hand into the fire and he says, this hand shall burn first for as much as it hath offended. I have sinned and that I signed with this hand what was contrary to my heart. Does Thomas Cranmer stand in glory today? I think so. Just like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, he was far from perfect. But Solus Christus, it promises, among other things, that Christ did not come to tell us how terrible we are, but rather how forgiven we are. Which is why as a church, we love to say that there's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.